Glad to be with you this morning. I want to, to look at God's word this morning and remind myself and remind you that God's word is a great story. It's a story that is true and a story that is good. Um, God's word is this story of, of creation, of a God who is ultimately powerful and loving who creates the world, and then the, the story shifts to our rebellion, how as his people we uh, wander far from the Lord, and then how the, the next chapter of God's great story is that he, from the very beginning, his plan A was to send Jesus to be a rescuer, to draw us back from rebellion and sin into right relationship with him. And the, the end of scripture is this story of the establishment of the church and how we would walk in obedience to the Lord and, and journey with him to the very end of this story that God is writing, the one true story. I love that the God's word, uh, it works that way. Last week, Jordan did a great job of reminding us that this story, it has many layers. And when we come to parts of God's word that seem a little bit confusing to us or that we don't know quite what to do with it, when we look a little bit more carefully, dig a little bit more deeper, we see that all of these parts of God's word are another layer of that bigger story, that, that there's nothing in God's word that we just kind of shuffle past it or overlook it, but we, we look to see how God is at work in this big story. Thinking back on uh, how Garen has been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, that the story of Nehemiah on the surface is certainly this man who goes to, to rebuild the defenses, the wall around Jerusalem. But more than that, it's a part of this story that God is writing, that, that he brings restoration, not just to a city in time and place or a wall, but he brings restoration to the human heart and that he gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a part of that work of restoration, that that's a story that he's writing in our very lives. I love that that's how God's word works together. Now, I think that the very best stories are stories that have a really clear uh, hero and a very obvious villain, and that the stories that are, I think are, are best for me are the ones that um, tell the, a journey towards um, you know, how, how does this villain end up being the villain? How does the hero become the hero? That There's a, a journey as a part of the story. Uh, the reason I, well, I'll tell you why. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of the best kinds of stories. Now, I told first service, I've never printed out like a Sunday morning bingo card, but if I did, your Sunday morning bingo card would be, is Jason going to mention Star Wars? And here it is. For my generation, being born in the 70s, the story of Star Wars was like this great story of a generation. There are real clear good guys and bad guys in the story of Star Wars. Darth Vader wears black from head to toe. He is obviously the bad guy. And then as a kid, there are kind of these like, do you know, is, is Han Solo going to be a good guy or a bad guy. He's a little bit of both. He's a rascal, but at his heart, you know, he, he makes the right decision in the end. I was drawn to this story as a kid. The other um, square on your Sunday morning preaching bingo card, if Garen was preaching, you would be listening. Is Garen going to mention Lord of the Rings? Garen's not preaching, but I'll put it in for him. He loves this story 
where there's good and there's evil and there's a quest. They're on this journey. The good guys look like hobbits and elves and the bad guys are like ogres and dragons, but there's a story, there's a journey, there's good and evil, these forces that are in conflict. For some of you, actually, I shouldn't even talk about Star Wars. Garen shouldn't be referencing Lord of the Rings anymore because the current generation, I can't get my kids to read Lord of the Rings. They're great books. They won't read them. I can't even get them to watch the movies because they want to watch movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is the new story of a generation. I have to confess, I haven't watched a whole lot of these movies but maybe you or maybe your kids or your grandkids have. I asked first service. Someone knew, like second answer, how many movies are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Anybody want to holler out your guess at how many movies are in this franchise? Too many. Now that's, I don't know who said that. I kind of like, like I said, I think I've seen one or two. Somebody in first service said he knew exactly how many and he had ranked them on a spreadsheet from like best to worst i thought that was kind of funny there are 33 movies in this franchise this is not confession time for you some of you have watched all of them and i don't mean to like endorse all 33 movies like i said i haven't seen all of them there are actually 11 more marvel movies that are in production right now so even if they don't make anything else there's going to be like 44 movies in this franchise do you know how much money the current uh, marvel movies have with the box office if you combine them all together i had to write it down because it was such a big number i don't think i would have remembered 30 billion dollars have been made with this movie franchise here's the only thing that i want to take away from that for this morning a lot of people are buying tickets to watch these movies because we love a story we love to see how good and evil come together we love to find out who's the villain and who's the hero and who how's it all going to work out at least 30 billion dollars worth we love watching this stuff this morning the reason i want to start us off this way this morning i want to turn our attention to a story within scripture where all of the stories are true there's a story within scripture where we have to have eyes to see and know who's supposed to be the villain in this story and how because jesus so regularly when he interacts with people there's an assumed bad guy and assumed good guys and jesus over and over again he does the unexpected he turns things upside down and I want us to have eyes to see what Jesus is doing and then see how we can learn from the story that God is writing in his word and how it is writing a story in our lives, a true story. So this morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 8. As we look in Matthew chapter 8 about this interaction between Jesus and a Roman soldier, the centurion, my prayer this morning from this short story will be that Jesus will show us Four things. First, I hope that we will learn to approach Jesus with our faith in the right place. I am hoping, praying that we would learn how to approach Jesus with appropriate humility. I'm praying that we would be able to, to understand that, that there is a confidence that we can have that He is ready to hear our requests, 
to, to respond to us, and then that we would trust that God is acting in His perfect wisdom when we come to Him. So that's kind of how it's going to go. I'm going to ask four questions from the, the words that the centurion and Jesus, and, um, that they exchange with each other. So let's read the text and we'll look at those four questions. Here's what Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13 say. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority and soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done as you have believed it would. And the servant was healed at that very moment. First question that I want you to ask and consider for this morning, what is God's posture towards us when we bring our concerns to him? Let's look at uh, what it means that this man who comes to Jesus is a centurion. For us this morning, um, I want you to hear centurion, and I want you to, to hear that as this is potentially the villain in the story. Uh, the centurion was a Roman military commander. Uh, typically, this would be a man who's in charge of a hundred other soldiers. You, you can maybe hear that in, in his title. A centimeter or a century refers to a hundred. So this is a, a commander of a hundred men. And he's in the city of Capernaum. city of Capernaum is almost in the middle of a road that even today you could follow this road. It runs from Damascus, Syria in the north, and in the south to Cairo, Egypt. On this road, there would have been merchants who were um, traveling back and forth, and they would have been uh, transporting goods like dried fish and olive oil, uh, spices and pottery. Now, to our ears, that doesn't sound like, uh, like valuable cargo. Um, if I told you there's a, a semi on Interstate 35 that, that crashed and it was full of olive oil, like that, that wouldn't mean that much to us. But in the first century, these are, this is a, a way that precious, valuable cargo is being transported. Where there is precious cargo, the Roman Empire has said, we need soldiers. We need someone here to make sure, to ensure that where the, the, the trade is happening, the money is coming in, and that as the, the occupying military force, we get our part of that. So Capernaum is a place when Jesus walks into town, there is a, a military outpost, and one of the commanders is this man, the centurion. That label centurion doesn't mean a lot to us. It's, it's like ancient history, literally ancient history to us. 
But as Jesus walks into town and sees Roman soldiers, maybe the disciples more than Jesus, when they walk into town and see a Roman soldier, they all know that a few generations before Jesus, this occupying force has slaughtered Jewish freedom fighters. And a few generations within the generation that Jesus is living, after the resurrection, the the Roman powers come in and and crush Israel once and for all, destroying the temple and, and slaughtering Jewish rebels right and left. So Roman soldiers are, they carry with them this this sense of these are the villains of the story, typically. As Jesus walks into town, that's the environment that he's in. Imagine Jesus in his, maybe a simple robe, as the centurion approaches. That centurion would have been wearing perhaps some body armor, a weapon at his side, and he has some insignia, a marker of his rank. Um, That's the person who approaches Jesus. And I, I want to put myself in that environment, maybe see that centurion the way one of the disciples would have seen him. For a moment, though, I want you to think about how does this centurion feel as he approaches this kind of minor, um, troublemaking Jewish rabbi that's Jesus. He approaches Jesus, and he knows everywhere that he goes, he's the outsider. He's not from Israel. Perhaps some commentators believe that Maybe he was from Syria, maybe he's from Italy, maybe he has come in to approach Jesus, but he looks different. All eyes will always be on him. As an occupier, everyone looks at him a particular way and understands who he is in a particular way. As the outsider, as the potential villain, he approaches Jesus. The reason I kind of paint that picture for you as we think about what the centurion says to Jesus and how Jesus responds to him, the reason I want you to think in those terms is this. For those of us who've grown up in church and been around church all of the time, we need to be reminded that there are folks here this morning who feel like outsiders, that there are outsiders in church In our church, I would venture to guess every time we gather, someone is here who feels like an outsider. Some of you feel like outsiders, and you think that maybe you are the wrong kind of person to approach Jesus. Maybe you're the wrong kind of person in your mind to even place faith in Jesus. Maybe you feel like you have come from the wrong family, you have the wrong background, You've lived the wrong lifestyle. You have the wrong politics. Maybe you've come from the wrong country or you speak the wrong language. Maybe you feel like you wear the wrong clothing. Maybe you feel like you have the wrong tattoos, the wrong thoughts, the wrong emotions. Something about you feels wrong to be the type of person who would approach Jesus. What is God's posture towards us when we feel like we are the wrong individuals to approach him. If we feel like outsiders, if we feel unworthy, if we feel like there's no hope, Jesus answers that question, what is God's posture towards us when we approach him even as outsiders? God's posture towards us when we bring our concerns to him is that he is there to hear our need and care for us. That is his character. Look back at verse 7. Verse 7 is this 
question that Jesus asked the centurion with an assumed positive answer. Shall I come and heal him? Jesus doesn't open the conversation for debate with the disciples. He doesn't, you know, kind of waver back and forth. When the outsider approaches Jesus, the potential villain steps into the conversation. Jesus just asks, shall I come and heal your servant? That's the character of God towards us. He is ready to hear our request and act on our behalf. Earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 7, there's a, a passage that sheds some light on this. Here's what Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 12 says. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus says that if you as sinful people know how to have a character, an attitude of graciousness, of love towards your children, how much more does your perfectly heavenly Father have a, a posture, a character of love towards us when we come to approach Him? Jesus is ready to hear our requests, even if we feel like outsiders. He's ready to give good to us. He's ready to act on our behalf. Second question that I have for us to consider based on what Jesus says and what the centurion says, what should our attitude be when we approach God with our needs? The centurion approaches Jesus coming from an unclean Roman home as an unclean uh, non-Jewish soldier. He knew that there are these cultural and religious barriers between himself and Jesus. He knew that according to the Old Testament, if Jesus had come into the home of the centurion, this non-Jewish character in the story, Jesus would have then become unclean, unable to participate in the, the religious life of the community. The Old Testament kind of lays out for God's people, uh, avoid becoming unclean, avoid all of this activity. And so the Roman centurion knew, if Jesus comes to me, Jesus should become unclean religiously. What we know from the rest of reading God's word is that Jesus is in the, the practice of making the unclean clean, making the diseased whole. Um, we know from reading the stories that what Jesus has just done is touched the unclean, diseased skin of the leper and made him whole again. We know that Jesus is after this story about to go into an encounter where he stops the unstoppable bleeding of a woman in need. And then he goes and he touches the lifeless body of a child and brings her back to life. There are two truths in tension in, in this middle part of the story that I want you to catch. First, the religiously unclean centurion does not deserve a visit from Jesus. He does not deserve that Jesus would come into his home. But second, Jesus doesn't hesitate to bring healing and salvation to the unclean, the untouchable, and the undeserving. So when we look at verse 8, where the centurion says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, I believe that in part that's a statement about the religious custom of the day that the centurion was aware of, but I think it's also about the humility of his heart. We 
like the centurion, we don't deserve any of God's goodness towards us. The very life that we live, the the good that we see in the world around us, the the beauty of a sunrise, the taste of a cup of coffee in the morning, the, the joy of this life, and certainly salvation, none of this is stuff that we deserve. The way Paul talks about it, if we think that we can come before God and bring Him some goodness of our own and exchange our religious observance, exchange our good reputation, exchange something inside of us for what He would offer, Paul calls that not something that's good, but something that's filthy. He calls it filthy rags if we would try to exchange some goodness from us for the gift of salvation. Instead of living that way, our attitude in approaching the Lord has to be marked by great humility, for we don't deserve what He offers us. And yet, He's the one who asks us today, shall I come and bring healing to your home? Shall I come and bring healing to your soul, even though we don't deserve any of it? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 helps us to understand this. In that passage of Scripture, it says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Those of us who are sinful, those of us who are in some way unclean, those of us who are undeserving, we are the ones who are, uh, and and if we know that this is true of us, we're invited to uh, approach the throne of grace with confidence. So if we are humbled by our sin, we can be confident in God's grace and approach Him. Third question I want you to consider, what are the limits of God's power to act on our behalf. Somehow, this centurion has come to the conclusion that Jesus has this authority from on high that is similar to his authority. The centurion has authority over a hundred men, but that authority is given to him by the very Caesar himself. Um, Roman soldiers, folks in the Roman world, would have understood Caesar to even be divine. And so on some level, this soldier understands that Jesus is able to, to act with supernatural authority in the same way that he says to a lower-ranking soldier, come, he comes, go, he goes. So he's made this, this observation, maybe he has heard rumors of the greatness of Jesus And somehow he knew that this physical world would bow down to the command of Jesus. Look back at what it says in verse 8. The centurion says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus doesn't need to be physically present to bring healing to the centurion's servant. He doesn't have to place his hand on the the broken body. He doesn't have to show up and make like a, a medical diagnosis He simply speaks, gives the order, and it's done. It's in this uh, middle section of Matthew's gospel 
where Matthew is writing and recording the miracles of Jesus. And it's like he one-ups these miracles, one on top of another, on top of another. And this is another one of these. That Jesus is demonstrating a divine power that at first it looks like Jesus can touch a body and bring healing. And now he simply speaks and he can cause healing to happen at, at a far distance. He's about, like I mentioned, to go and, and raise the dead back to life. And then he's even going to, to speak the word and calm the, the raging storm. And in a moment, the, the storm goes from, from wild waves and wind to a, a calm sea. Uh, Matthew shows us this kind of like one-upping of Jesus' divine power. So if that is true, and we can read about it in God's word, uh, I have a question that automatically comes to my mind when I try to apply this story, apply this truth to my life. If God has this kind of power, why, when I pray, why doesn't God act to do what I think is best? If the only limit to the power of Jesus then and now is his will, why doesn't Jesus do the stuff that I think would be good? Why doesn't he bring healing into the lives of, of our sick family members now? Why doesn't he work a miracle to prove himself to the people that I love who don't believe in him? Why doesn't he rescue us from the difficult situations we're in. Maybe it's a, a financial situation or something at work or something in relationship. It feels like it would take a miracle to resolve this. So why doesn't God provide that miracle? Here's a three-word easy answer for you. I don't know. That's my answer for myself, my answer for you. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit in jest, but there's something deeper to the reality that I don't know the answer to this question and neither do you. I, as I thought about this, uh, a song came to mind. This is probably never going to be on your Sunday morning bingo card, like Will Jason reference. There's a song from the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof that popped into my mind as I thought about this. In Fiddler on the Roof, the, the father figure, Tevye, is um, walking back home and he begins to sing this song, If I Were a Rich Man. Now, the, the, the risk I run here is that now you are going to hum this the rest of Sunday morning. I guess that's okay if you know the, the musical. If you don't, you're just humming the theme song to, I don't know, a Marvel movie. Um, as Tevye is walking back home, he begins to sing a prayer to God and he says, if I were a rich man, then God, I would be able to impress my neighbors with all of my wealth. If I were a rich man, I would spoil my wife. If I were a rich man, I wouldn't have to work so hard and I could spend hours with the religious leaders praying. And in the very end of the song, here's what Tevye says, Lord who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed that I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man. Tevye is praying and asking, God, would it undo your plan if I just had a little more wealth? If I didn't have to work so hard? If my family was more secure, would that spoil the, the thing, that, their story that you're writing? When we 
become frustrated at God and kind of have these same ideas running through our hearts and our minds. When we become frustrated at God that he doesn't act on our behalf, we assume, whether we know it or not, whether we would say it or not, we assume that we can see every eventuality. We assume that we can understand every potential answer to prayer, and this answer that we desire is the right one. But we don't know. We don't see what he sees. We don't understand what he understands. We certainly don't have the power that he has. My prayer, and this doesn't need to be your prayer, but this is how I have kind of had to answer this for myself. My prayer is that my desire to grow in trust in God, my desire is that I would grow more and more convinced that even if I don't see the answer to my prayers, even if the answers aren't what I expect, I would pray even more without seeing the answer to the prayer. If, if the Lord doesn't choose to show me that that will be okay, and I'll keep praying. As I thought about that, there's an image that kind of popped into my mind, maybe because it's the, the end of January, or the end of December, the start of January, and many of you uh, maybe have a job like I do where your employer um, takes a portion of money, perhaps out of your paycheck or on their end, and they deposit a portion of those funds into a retirement fund uh, month after month after month so that someday at retirement there will be this, this nest egg that has been saved up. I don't know about you, I don't check those statements very often. Maybe once every six months or so, I'll look to see, and I'm like, yep, the money is coming out from me, and it's going into there, wherever there is, and someone manages it, and it seems like they're doing a, a better job than I would do, so that it will be there someday. I think on some level, I think about my prayer and my um, wrestling with whether God will answer my prayers the way I expect or not like this. I want to pray and expect that some answer to that prayer has been deposited and I don't need to see the statement. And I'm going to keep praying and keep praying, continuing to have trust and faith that God is good and he is loving. And even though I don't need to see the statement and it doesn't seem obvious to me, that someday I will eventually see there is a vast treasure of answered prayers that I get to be a part of, that I see how my prayers that seem to go unanswered were answered in this way. And in his love and his care and his goodness, that was the right answer and not what I thought it ought to be. Last question for us to think about as we think about what Jesus says to the centurion, what he says in response. Question is this, how do we get great faith? In verse 10, Jesus says, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, the religious leaders that are kind of in the background of this story, those are the individuals who are cast out. Those who are God's chosen people are actually sent away as outsiders. But this outsider, Jesus says, has great faith. The religious leaders didn't have great faith. The disciples, if you're familiar with the Gospels, if you read about how they interact with Jesus, sometimes the disciples have great faith, and other times the disciples waver and have like zero faith. 
But here comes a, a Roman centurion wearing body armor from far away, Italy or Syria, comes to Jesus with a need, and Jesus says, this man, the outsider, has great faith. How do we learn from what's happening and, and get to the place where we can have great faith? Great faith um, doesn't come from the centurion's religious training. He didn't have any. It doesn't come from his like going to the temple to make sacrifices at the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to do it in the first place. But what happens is the centurion has a need, and he has his need targeted directly at Jesus. You see, great faith comes when we focus on the object instead of what's inside of us, the amount of faith that we have. So where have we placed our faith? Do we look inside and say, I think I have a lot, or mine is running low, or do we turn our attention to Jesus? The centurion was focused on Jesus. He'd heard about Jesus. He had a need, so he brought it to him. Uh, we don't need to have perfect faith in order to walk with Jesus, and that's really good news. You don't have to have some meet a minimum standard of faith inside of you in order to follow him. And the reason that's really good news is that if you had faith that was inside of you, like uh, this image popped into my mind um, when I think about checking what's on the inside, I thought of checking, like checking the oil in my car. If I go out and I pop the hood and I, I go to the engine, I can pull out a dipstick and I can see, okay, here's where the oil on the inside of this thing, it, it's all the way up or it's a little bit low. The reason we don't, it's good news that you don't have to have a lot of faith is that if we were somehow able to check our faith, we are all several courts low. I'm convinced that that's true because of how good God is and the marvelous display of his grace and his love and his care for us. We ought to have faith that's like all the way up to the top, but I know mine isn't there. I'm assuming yours isn't as well. But that's okay, because it's not about how much you have or how much you are lacking. Because Jesus is like this. He is this, um, he's so different from every other god or idol or deity that people might come up against. Here's how Jesus interacts with us. One of my favorite prayers is in Mark chapter 9. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 9. There's a, a father who comes to Jesus who has a sick child, and here's what the father says. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if, if you can help, all things are possible for the one who believes. So immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Only our God, only Jesus is the type of Savior who says, when we come to him, I have faith. Can you help me like, have more than I've got because it's really low? I believe, but can you help me when I don't believe? A, a normal God, a normal deity would say, what? You, know, you don't believe in me? Like I've shown you with, with thunder and lightning that I'm a God to be, I, I am impressive. You should be afraid. You should approach me with total belief. But Jesus comes to us, and when we don't have very much faith, he says, good, bring it to me, and here's how I'll act on your behalf. That's how he interacts with us. So what is Jesus's posture towards us? 
His posture towards us is that He desires to hear from us and to bring good into our lives. How do we approach Jesus? We approach Him humbled by our need, but confident of His grace. What are the limits of the power of Jesus? The only limitation is that He only does what is best, what He wills for our good. And how do we get great faith? Fix our gaze on Jesus and not the faith that's inside of us. Last thought for you this morning. Some of us feel like outsiders here at church this morning. Some of you feel like this is home. This is family. Let all of us remember, no matter where you have come from, what your background is like, let us all remember that Jesus brings salvation from the outside. We don't come to him with some good inside of us. Jesus comes to us outside of our logic, outside of our experience, outside of our family, outside of our background, and he welcomes all who would rely on him and him alone for salvation. Let me pray this over us. Father God, I thank you that it was your plan A to bring Jesus into this broken world and offer salvation to outsiders, to insiders, to offer salvation for all of us who have only a little bit of faith. Father, I thank you that that is your plan from the very beginning. Father, I do pray that this morning that you would shape our hearts in such a way that we would come to you knowing that your character is such that you are ready to hear from us, that you welcome our coming towards you with our need. Father, I thank you that it's a part of who you are, that we can approach you both with humility and with confidence. Humility because we are not deserving, but confidence in your grace. Father, I thank you that your power is limitless. Father, I pray that you would do the work in our hearts, that we would trust that your limitless power, your answer to our prayer, your answer is best and not what we would expect or how we would answer our own needs. Father, I thank you that we can grow in faith, not by looking at ourselves, but keeping our gaze focused on your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would use these truths from your word to transform us in such a way that we would be able to transform our families, um, the places where we work, and in the, the community where we live. Amen. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you still are uncertain where you stand with Jesus, I would love to talk to you. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.